And do you know how many people would probably like run away at the sight of dismembered legs? Yeah. Dude, there's a four foot bong and a bag of weed by your bed. <laughs> Jelly Wings, the parlor game for nerds, is nearing extinction. It's in my pod! It's in my pod! <laughs> I will find proof. <laughs> I am very easily startled, Mr. Finkelman. I don't know which regulation body would regulate the uh, penis ring that you were talking about earlier. (laughs) I'm ready to remain conscious as we record this show. Hey, welcome to Medical Stuff. My name is Mark. I will not allow a leech anywhere on my body, Franco. And that over there is Chris. I feel like I have female hysteria Fringston. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Um, did you hear that? I heard you talking. Okay, perfect. Uh, hey, <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Uh, fun fact, I have had leeches on my body. Really? Yeah. Uh, we went swimming this while ago. We went down to... Oh, where was this? I want to say it was just north of the border. Uh, tell me, tell me, it was Leech Lake. <laughs> I mean, that would have def- seen this coming. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would make sense. I want to say it was in Aspen, Oregon, if I'm getting the town right. Hmm. And um, which obviously, for anyone out there, is like, wow, you went to Aspen? No, not that yeah. Aspen. <laughs> um, but anyway, and uh, we, we found a lake and we went swimming. It's just north of the border, of California, and. Uh, came out and i'm like god that's fun it's an awesome lake and then i kind of looked down at <laughs> my arm it's like why was this mud not coming because it's kind of muddy around the outskirts why is this right. not coming off i'm like is this a piece of nope nope that's a leech and that's attached that's a leech yeah and i had probably like three or four of them on me so um yeah so i didn't even know leeches were up here i thought they were more of a warm climate creature these are really small leeches i mean i want to say none, none of them was bigger than maybe half inch long oh, okay and uh, about as skinny as oh i'd say like an auxiliary cable. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, well, a little bit thicker than that, but not much. So they're tiny leeches. Yeah, just tiny little leeches. Hmm, so they might not even be called leeches, but you know what? They cling onto your skin. It looks like they suck blood to me. So that's a leech. Okay. So we're just hypothesizing they're leeches. No, they, they, they I, mean, I did legitimately look them up. They were leeches, they, but they could be just sticky leaves at this point. <laughs> no, definitely animals. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Definitely animals. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about outdated treatments. Yeah. Um, and we're not talking like uh, down the tube epi kind no. of stuff. Which Did you ever do that? Uh, it was in my protocol. Never actually performed right. it, no. When I started, we were doing uh, first round of drugs down the tube. So for PEA and asystole, we would do two rounds of atropine because you double-dosed everything. Mm-hmm. So there's 20 cc's down the tube. So really quick, when Mark says down the tube, what he's talking about is a definitive airway where we put a uh, right. endotracheal tube. It's just a <laughs> tube that goes down someone's trachea for to help them breathe. And in certain situations, like a code 99, where someone has no pulse, they're not breathing, we frequently place these tubes, but we also have to give medications. You right. can absorb medications in your lungs. So, well. Wow. Eh. The yeah, theory yeah. is, <laughs> there is. So yeah, we would put two rounds of atropine down the tube, and then we would draw up an extra milligram of epi into a one to ten thousand, giving us two. And so thirty cc's later, yeah, you know. So yes, yeah, so maybe they're getting medication, but they're also being drowned, right? You know. So I like the fact that you've just embraced uh, defensive airway as a term rather than fighting it anymore. Do you know how many people? Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to rephrase this. Do you know how many motherfuckers have come up to me and made mention of that? And, and here's the thing. The people that have said that to me, you know, motherfucker is a term of endearment. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because them using definitive airway was a term of endearment for them. You know, it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, if I'm not giving you a hard time, then we have a problem. Right. Right. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. Well, it's just the gift that keeps on giving, you know? It is. It is. So, so gosh, uh, speaking of leeches. Yes. So, leeching and bloodletting. So, bloodletting or blood hyphen letting. <laughs> That's some useful radio work there. That's on Mark's prep. Anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I put it in there because I saw that and I was like, is there really that big of a difference that we need to parenth- uh, put that in a parenthetical subsect? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, Anyway, so bloodletting is the withdrawal of blood from a patient to prevent uh, or cure illness and disease. Bloodletting, whether by a physician or by leeches, uh, was based on an ancient system of medicine in which blood and other bodily fluids were regarded as humors. So if you ever heard about getting out the bad humors, that's 
that's where that comes from. Uh, the humors had to remain in proper balance to maintain health. So if you had fewer, uh, fewer good humors than you did bad humors, they got it and had to get the bad ones out. So it's claimed to have been the most common medical practice performed by surgeons uh, from antiquity until the late 19th century. So it's been yeah. about 2,000 years. Yeah, this this maintained for 2,000 years. Let's just drain some blood out of you. Yeah. And I wonder if it's one of those things where, you know, they would do it and someone would be like, God, I felt awful after that. Now I still feel sick. And the doc would be like, hey, do you feel better or do we have to do this again? No, no, I feel better. <laughs> Much better. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Yeah, uh, tons. <clears throat> yeah. I'm going to go. And the doc's like, oh, shit, that worked. Yeah. Wow, I just boy. made that. I just made that up last night. You know, yeah. <laughs> here it is. And I want to point something out before we get too far into this. Um, there. <clears throat> There's a common thing uh, I'm seeing here, and uh, it's one of the things, because we, we all know how much I love pseudoscience medicine, uh, <laughs> in that I don't. Uh, in fact, our show does not love pseudoscience medicine. but uh, Spencer does. Oh, yeah. If anybody yeah. if anybody <laughs> hates hates real science, it's that right. man. Um, but he... Uh, he would he he would point this out as well. One of the things you commonly see in BS medicine is the ancient Greeks or the ancient Chinese used this, and it's it's called an appeal to antiquity. And mm-hmm. I want to point out that whenever someone uses that as a good reason to uh, use a particular treatment, that's from the same era that these are from. <laughs> so <laughs> these are the same people that apparently were so wise were also draining blood out of people to try and cure them. And then wait till we get to uh, trepanning. Here in a little bit. Oh, God. I don't even know what that is. I'm excited. Uh, you'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, passages from the Ebers papyrus uh, indicate the bloodletting by scarification, which is different than uh, where people intentionally scar themselves as a way of altering their body look, as a beautification sort of thing. Or a, uh, Sometimes people will, like, brand themselves or cut pictures into their skin, causing scars. But uh, this was scarification where they were, I believe it was like they were <clears throat> tapping into arteries in the head and stuff <laughs> like that. But they were practiced in ancient Egypt. Tapping uh, in as if there's secret information in there that you just right. got to get into. Well, because I was reading here a little bit, we'll talk about they get into the arteries and they use the ones in the temple. <laughs> like, yeah, this is actually how humans get their Wi-Fi. You just tap no, in right here. Right. Now, I'm assuming they don't mean they went down to like the temple of the gods. I'm assuming the temple on the side of your head. So, but uh, ancient Egyptian uh, or Egyptian burials have been w- reported to contain bloodletting instruments. Uh, according to some accounts, the Egyptians based their, uh, the idea on their observations of the hippopotamus, confusing its red set sweat as blood. Oh, I believe wow. That it, yeah. I believe that it scratched itself to relieve distress. So, <clears throat> well, you've heard, I mean, genetically, how close a hippopotamus is to humans, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, pretty I mean, much like, next door yeah. neighbors on the old family tree. <laughs> So my uncle was uh, actually a hippopotamus. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. Isn't that, isn't that a song? Oh, um, kid song. You anyway, know what? It needs to be. It does. Oh, you're thinking of I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Maybe yeah, yeah. Maybe that was it. But anyway, uh, in Greece, bloodletting was used uh, in the fifth century BC during the life of Hippocrates, who mm-hmm. mentions his practice, but generally relied on. Uh, dietary techniques to maintain his health. Uh, Which isn't terribly unfounded at all. That's no, no. No, yeah, that's... Uh, so, the, the Arasotrasis, however, theorized that many diseases sure. were caused by plethoras or overabundances in the blood and advised that these plethoras be treated. Initially, exercise, sweating, reducing your food intake, and vomiting were the ways they did this. Uh, Herophilus advocated bloodletting, bloodletting, and Archagathus. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to assume that was right. Well, uh, obviously, uh, obviously, Archagathus was one of the first Greek physicians. I'm not <laughs> sure how you don't know this word, well, Mark. Well, he's one of the first Greek physicians to practice in Rome. Well, I mean, right, but I mean, <laughs> if you're not practicing in Rome, Mark, you're not practicing. Let's face right, it, exactly. <laughs> Where are you practicing? Um, oh, Athens? Oh, get out of town. Yeah, Sparta, whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Hippocrates believed that menstruation and women functioned to purge the women of bad, the bad humors. So it wasn't even so much that they under, it's not that they just didn't understand why women menstruated. 
they went a completely different direction. And just started <laughs> making shit up. Yeah, just, and, uh, the only redeeming quality is I hope this was like a drunken conference one time. And, <laughs> you know, they, they were all sitting around just hammered out of their head. And they came up with this shit and they woke up the next morning going... Oh, ain't got nothing better, so let's run with it, you know. So I just imagine, like, an ancient Greek co- medical conference, and someone said, like, they can't get the projector to work. There's always that, you know. Someone's like, oh, I know the problem. What's the problem? Well, it hasn't been invented yet. Ah, uh, shit. <laughs> oh, yes. We don't have a light bulb to, that can put off the uh They just wattage. got some guy chiseling a stone tablet as fast as he fucking can to try and make <laughs> No, no, I want an animated swoop from the right. Put a sound effect in, Bob. Uh, the pop, so uh, during the Roman Empire, the Greek physician Galen, Galen, Ooh, okay, who subscribed to the teachings of Hippocrates, uh, advocated physician-initiated bloodletting. So even up into the Romans, you know, what I mean, it just—I think I, this is- it makes me wonder what we're doing in medicine today. That in a thousand pe- years, people are going to be like. Pfft. What the hell were they thinking? <laughs> well, I think a lot of it comes back to, I mean, what we have today. I mean, we have ways to measure outcomes. We have processes. Uh, they had a lot of scientific processes actually date back to these times. Go figure. Mm-hmm. But um, whether or not they were employed successfully and widespread, you know, who's to say? And then the other thing, too, is you got to think about it is, you know, we're sitting here with we have pharmaceutical companies that have million and billion dollar factories that are able to fine tune on a microscopic level some drug well that doesn't exist in ancient greece right you know and so a lot of times i think a lot of this comes from this is what we got and this is what we're going to use right well i mean i I think it's that that thing and, and you've you've kind of railed against this too is where people will say well we have to do something right and this is the something they came up with. <laughs> well, they did. I mentioned that, you know, that uh, the Hippocrates believed that menstruation functioned to purge women's bad humors. And that's where the idea of this came from. Yeah. So, oh, well, you bleed every month because you, you're, you're just trying to naturally keep your humors in order. <laughs> well, I'm a guy. I can't do that. Well, here, we'll just cut open an artery or a vein. And Give get me a knife. Of, yeah, exactly. You know, I want to so. bleed once a month, too. <laughs> <laughs> So, let's see. Popular bloodletting was uh, in the classical Mediterranean world was reinforced by the ideas of Galen after he discovered that only veins, not only veins, but arteries were filled with blood. They're both filled with blood, blood Chris. Okay. I feel like, all right, whatever. I feel like he's giving himself a lot of credit by calling this a discovery, but go ahead. <laughs> well, before that, it was commonly believed uh, at the time that uh, they were filled with air. How is that commonly believed? <laughs> I don't. How, did people not get cut for a long time? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I. Okay, all I right. have the same information you do. Right. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Moving on. What else? <laughs> <laughs> so, how many key concepts in the system of, were there in the system of blood doling, Chris? If I had to roll a dice and guess, I would say two. <laughs> But if I just read the paper in front of me, I'll also say two because right. that's what we have. So uh, the first was the first was that the blood was created and then used up. It did not circulate. Again, I don't see how anybody can come up with that. And so it could stagnate in the extremities. So yeah, basically, food uh, blood was considered to be used like food. Your body made it, huh? Ate it, no. And if it didn't get used up, it just got stagnant. Spoiled. That makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm with that. You ever had blood pudding? <laughs> I have. I've also had blood sausage. So I've um, I've also had blood sausage. I've had blood pudding. There, there's another paramedic that uh, both Mark and I know, and he will make a scotch egg. Ooh. Oh like man. Eggs. And. Um, He'll make, he'll make scotch eggs and he brings them to work for me from time to time. And wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa! Where right? the hell are my scotch eggs, motherfucker? <laughs> well, I, you know, I shouldn't out him like this because Mark, they are good, and he oh. he does them like straight out of England. Does them for for those mm-hmm. that don't know, a scotch egg is essentially a hard boiled egg that is basically wrapped in uh, sausage. It's wrapped in sausage and then usually deep fried in some way. It's very uh, British. Rolled, uh, yeah, it's uh, wrapped in sausage and rolled in breadcrumbs and then deep fried to cook the sausage. And if you're doing it the true blue 
straight out of good old London way, there's a layer of blood pudding in there as well, which he doesn't always do because blood pudding is, you know, you don't keep those ingredients in your cabinet every day. But every once in a blue moon, he'll be like, hey, man, I got some blood pudding. I'm making some scotch eggs. Do you want some? The answer is always yes. And he brings them. And I'll tell no, you. The answer should always be yes. And Franken will be here at that point. <laughs> and the thing, the thing about the blood pudding is I think a lot of people get grossed, about, grossed out about it because it it's a pudding made with blood. Um, it's really just kind of a it's like a salty condiment. Mm-hmm. And if you can get your head past what it is, it's yeah. it's amazing. It yeah. is amazing. And those scotch eggs are just so. Oh, yeah. God, I want one right now. <laughs> like I'm thinking about it. And all I want is that scotch egg. I'm thinking about the second uh, part of this, con- or the second concept was that the humoral balance was the basis of illness or health. What are you talking the, about? Oh, the, the show. Four, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go the, ahead. Few, <laughs> the four humors being blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. What's black bile? I have no idea. Wow. Uh, these were relating to the four Greek classical elements of uh, air, water, earth, and fire, respectively. So black bile is obviously earth. Clearly. Uh, right. And Galen believed that the blood uh, was the dominant humor uh, of the four and the one most in need of control. <laughs> so to balance the humors, a physician, a physician would effectively uh, either remove excess blood, a plethora, uh, from the patient or give them an anemetic inducing vomiting or a diuretic to induce urination. Hmm. Of the three, I think I'd have to go with the diuretic if I had a choice. Right. That's, yeah. You good? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So, Galen created a complex system of how much blood should be removed based on the patient's age, constitution, the season, because that should always go into good medical care. Oh, wait, just a second. It's December. (laughs) Uh, The weather outside and where you were. Uh, do do it yourself. Don't think it should be really a DIY sort of thing. Uh, bleeding instructions followed. Uh, these systems were developed. Symptoms of plethora were believed to include fever, apoplexy, and headache. The blood uh, to be let was a specific nature determined by the disease or either arterial or venous, and distant or closest areas to the body could be affected. He linked different blood vessels with different organs according to their uh, their supposed drainage. For example, the vein in the right hand uh, would be let for liver problems. Well, that makes sense. Right. Um, And the the vein in the left hand uh, was for problems with the spleen. So. Yeah. uh, The more severe the disease, the more blood would be let. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Fevers required copious amounts of bloodletting. Of course. Right. Well, you got to get the hot blood out. Exactly. And here's the thing. If you are letting out enough blood to drop somebody's temperature, that's (laughs) your. Oh, wait a couple. Wait a couple seconds here. Yeah. Uh, Even after the humoral system fell into disuse, the practice was continued by surgeons and barber surgeons. So what is a barber surgeon? uh, They're barbers. They were also surgeons and also surgeons because of bloodletting mainly. Through the bloodletting was often, oh, the, or sorry, though the bloodletting was often recommended by a physician, it was carried out by the barbers. So, you know, the red striped pole outside a barbershop? This Go is on. Where, this is where it comes from. The red oh represents God. the blood. The white represents bandages. I'm going to go visit my mechanic veterinarian, <laughs> see if my dog's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was, this was, a, this was how it was done back then. The doctor said, yeah, you should probably have some bloodletting done. Here, take this prescription down to the barber's shop and have that happen. <laughs> the barber's like, I got a razor. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. I got uh, two cuts. I got to do a perm. Oh, fuck. I got three bloodlettings this afternoon. I'm going to be busy today. Brief digression. And I apologize to listeners that don't like this, but this is worth saying. Um, so my wedding day, my wife is like, hey, <laughs> go get a professional shave. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And I went to one of those places that was like, I'm not going to name the name of the place, but it's like one of those man salons. Oh, they drive me crazy. Where you come in and you can be a man and watch your football and drink your beer, and then we'll have a 20-year-old with a razor cut your face. And that's what they do, it turns out. So I'm on my my wedding day. I don't think the last one's really a selling point. 
you know, you're right. It wasn't on the painted window, but still. Uh, and so I come in there and this gal comes out and I am young because I got married when I was biddly boop, uh, 22, 23. Oh, fuck it. Uh, but anyway, I got married a little bit young. She is younger than I and she's going to shave my face for my wedding day. And I'm immediately worried. And I'm not saying there's no talent in youth. Of course there is. Youth is the future. Blah, blah, blah. But what she ends up doing is basically destroying my face on my wedding day with a straight razor, then blaming my face for the problem. Right. Well, obviously. By, well, yeah. <laughs> she's like, do you shave with a razor normally? I'm like, every morning. Every morning I shave with a razor. The problem is, is that you cut me. That's mm-hmm. the problem. And so I'm like, look, I I cut it off. I'm like, you're 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 done. I can't afford two cuts on my wedding day. I'm gonna head out. So <laughs> I tell that story to say that I think some barbershops are still practicing bloodletting. Well, or maybe, at least maybe that one is. Yeah, you know, sometimes prescriptions get crossed. And maybe she was using somebody else's prescription. That was probably the case. Someone came yeah. for some bloodletting earlier and said they got a beer and then they left. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, and was I mean, the one I went to? Like they give you neck massages. Ooh, I'm like, I'm not gonna lie, man. I like a good neck massage. Me too, me too. But really, when I'm getting a haircut, I'm more of the um, supercuts kind of guy. I'm like, in and out. <laughs> Let's get this done. I got things to do today. So uh, yeah, how about this? I am more the I grab the buzzer from my cabinet and shave my own head. Right. Kind of guy. <laughs> so uh, back to the show. Uh, <laughs> I'll cut that down a bit. Don't worry. <laughs> Bloodletting was used to treat a wide range of diseases, uh, becoming standard treatment for almost every ailment, and was practiced prophylactically as well as therapeutically. Oh, God. <laughs> I may be coming down with a cold. I should go get some blood out. Well, I think his best here, what I'm reading is, and I apologize, you already read this. Uh, Galen did actually create a complex system of how oh, yeah. much blood should be removed based on a patient's age, constitution, the season, the weather, well, and the place. But here's the thing. This is the best part. And this is in quotes. Do-it-yourself bleeding instructions following yeah. these systems were developed. Symptoms of plethora were believed to include fever, uh, apoplexy, and headache. Um, we already do this. Fuck, we did. Dude, I'm way off. <laughs> so, um, we're like... We're just about female hysteria, yeah, aren't we? Okay, yeah, we are. Cool. There it is. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Oh. Uh, the withdrawal of, <laughs> uh The withdrawal of so much blood uh, as to induce <clears throat> syncope, or fainting, was considered beneficial. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, many... Wait, wait, wait. Oh, many sessions would only end up when the patient began to swoon. So the thing about this, guys, is um, syncope or fainting, that's when you have lost enough blood that your body is no longer able to perfuse your brain to maintain an adequate amount of consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is why this happens. Yeah. That's You're, dropping, you're dropping the blood pressure. Oh, yeah. Hugely bad. You know, Bigly, we've, as we've some talked about it say. in cardiovascular. We've talked about it in our cardiac issue. Go back and listen to those if you want to hear about hypotension. But, yeah. You heart... Container or pump container and and uh, volume, and you're affecting the volume here to the point that people are passing out, and that was looked as beneficial. <laughs> um, so starting in the 1600s, with the advent of the scientific method, attitudes began to change, but it still took nearly 200 years for this to really stop being used commonly. Oh yeah, it was I up can, until the yeah. mid 1800s. Yeah. So Mark and I are going to ruin something for you real quick. Well. If you've Probably been using, a lot of things. So, so here's the thing. I, I refrain from using the word hysteria because that I kind of know what it harkens back to. And it's pretty sexist. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so we're going to, if you didn't know what the word hysteria meant uh, before this episode, dun, you, dun, dun. you're going to know now. Right. Although I do have a question for you, Mark. You had brought mm-hmm. up uh, quite a few episodes ago. You talked about the term rule of thumb. Uh-huh. And... What does that mean exactly again? Uh, the rule of thumb was it was okay to beat your wife with a stick that was no bigger round than your thumb. So I do got to ask you, mm-hmm. did you learn that from Boondock Saints or did you learn that from somewhere else? No, I learned that when I was in college. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. You, were, you went to college? Uh, I Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was enrolled in college and I went for a while, but I eventually dropped out. I mean, I gave them money. Mom and dad, Mom and dad I'm still, I didn't give them money. <laughs> Which leads me back to mom and dad. I'm still really sorry about that. That was probably more money. But yeah, I don't think your parents listen. It's, uh, my mom does. 
There you go. Yeah, my mom your, does. Your dad's like, fuck him. He owes me. Exactly. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the next thing. So, that's uh, you got anything else on bloodletting or leeching? Uh, no, uh, sir. Leeching is still used in certain circumstances today. Oh, uh, yeah. One of the things they found that with uh, leeching is that the leeches actually le- uh, release an anticoagulant into the bloodstream. And if they, uh, there are therapeutic uses still today that they use leeching for, but not in the fact that they're trying to just get blood out of the body. So, it's not real common, but it does happen. Anything else on that one? Nah, man, move on. <laughs> okay, so, female hysteria. Oh, God. <laughs> ah, so, those pesky wounds. <laughs> so, they never stay still, always strike our problems. <laughs> never stay still, yeah. Never mind. Uh, so, uh, according to a comprehensive study on female hysteria, compiled by researchers from the University of... Cagliari. That's supposed to be Calgary? No, Cagliari. Okay. Ca- uh, Cagliari. You can tell because it's not in Canada. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> Egyptian text dating back uh, as far as 1900 BC argued that hysterical disorders were caused by women's wombs moving throughout their body. What's wrong, honey? Uh, your womb gone on walkabout? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My arm feels like it's asleep. All your womb's probably in there cutting off blood supply. (laughs) Uh, Ancient Greeks believed in it, too. Uh, It was the 5th century BC. Hippocrates, pretty much the founder of Western medicine. (laughs) I like Uh, this looks like. In what may not go down as his greatest achievement. (laughs) He first coined the term hysteria from the word hystera, or meaning uterus, and also attributed its cause to abnormal movements of the womb in a woman's body. So every time you say hysteria, this is what you're referring to. Right. You're referring to the fact that the womb was seen as something that caused problems. Right. Because it was wandering about in the body. So Thomas Sydenham, he was an influential uh, British physician. He lived mid to late 1600s. Uh, and he clearly thought that crazy ladies were wandering around everywhere. Sydenham <laughs> once declared that female hysteria, which he attributed also to irregular motions, or not also, sorry, which he attributed to, in quotes, irregular motions of the animal spirits, was the second most common malady of the time, just behind fevers. <laughs> And so I want to point fever, out, fever I wanna, leading the pack here. <laughs> I want to point out that you get a fever for almost anything that makes you sick. I mean, and, so, and as we all know, that's easily fixed with bloodletting, cowbell. Come okay. <laughs> Good lord. I fear I stick the information in the episode, but if you want to go, Christopher, <laughs> walking on me, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so fainting, outburst, nervousness, and irritability weren't the only hallmarks of female hysteria. Certain core aspects of female sexuality, desire, and sexual frustration were also on the list. So yes, so if you were, if, if you, you were, were horny <laughs> and and female, right? Clearly because of that wandering womb. Clearly, your uterus has found its way down to your ankle. Hey, and but also ex- excessive vaginal lubrication. <laughs> And erotic fantasies were considered symptoms of the disease. So essentially, like, oh, God. So this had to be a terrible time because you might have a guy that's otherwise nailing his job. And then he'd be like, shit, shit, she's hysterical. <laughs> well, it just, and we'll, we'll touch on this again in here in just a few minutes. It really shows, and because it, it shows even up today when you see members of our Congress trying to regulate women's bodies. And they obviously have absolutely no fucking clue what they're talking about. The vagina is where the poop comes out, right? Right. <laughs> well, you know, but it, it, it's all started back with this kind of bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. So at various points of history, the massaging of the woman's pelvis, her genitals, uh, was embraced by many health experts as a cure for female hysteria, resulting in hysterical paroxysms. Okay. Or an orgasm. So now this is seeming less bad. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, basically, if you were having your female hysteria, you could uh, go to the doctor. They'd rub one out for you. Anyone ever notice that Tom's wife is sick a lot? (laughs) Oh, this is going to get a little bit better. It's going to get really bad for a few minutes because there's this very dark side to this. But but you know what podcast you're listening to. Exactly. So, like, you had to click this. This wasn't an accident. Uh, so, through the though the pact- practice dates back to the Renaissance and even before, it became a, here we go, 
moneymaker for the medical establishment during the Victorian era. Bet it fucking did. <laughs> so my question is, what they're trying to say is, the money shot was a moneymaker? <laughs> oh, so by the early 19th century, physician-assisted paroxysm was firmly entrenched in the U.S. and Europe and proved a financial godsend for many doctors. So basically, women were going to the doctors to get masturbated by the physician. And doctors were making bank on this. This is why hysteria, the Greek from the Greek word hyster, meaning uterus, has become synonymous with madness. And this is why we do not like this word at all. Right. You know. So, uh, in 1858, uh, Dr. Baker Brown began performing, and this is that dark period, uh, this is for the ladies only. I don't think men are, are capable of handling this next information. Uh, they started performing in 1858 in London's surgical home for women, clitoridectomies. Mm. They felt that one of the ways of treating female hysteria permanently for life was to remove the clitoris. Which seems way backwards from what we just talked about. Well, this was this was one school of thought. There were two schools of thought on how to take care of this. One of them was what we just talked about, and yeah. then this was the other side of that coin. Yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> no, not at all. So, yeah. So, what's up next, Chris? Well, that would be when Mr. Granville invented the vibrator. Dr. Granville. Dr. Granville. Sorry. Yes. He'd be offended if he heard me call him Mr. Exactly. Uh, so when the vibrator emerged in the late 19th century, I am such a seven-year-old. I'm sitting here like the vibrator. <laughs> uh, emerged in the late 19th century. Uh, it explains technology. <clears throat> excuse me. So there's, th- this whole section is being explained by Rachel Maines in her book, The Technology of Orgasm. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, it was intended as an electromechanical medical instrument. To provide more reliable and efficient physical therapy to women believed to be suffering from hysteria. And it was a welcome advance. Doctors sought every opportunity to substitute other devices for their fingers. Um, Mains. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to laugh off female hysteria as preposterous and and antiquated pseudoscience. But the fact is, the American Psychiatric Association didn't drop the term until the early 1950s. And that's not ancient history. There are people that... Many, many people alive today are from the 1950s. And though it had... Hello? I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. You, you uh, cut off on my end on the end part of it. Oh, uh, well, I got it recorded, so I'm set. Okay. Uh, and though it had taken on a very different meaning from its early roots, like hysterical neurosis, uh, it didn't disappear from the DSM, often referred to as the Bible of modern psychiatry, by the way, uh, until 1980. Uh, sadly, though, we're still feeling the impact of this highly entrenched medical diagnosis. So, in the in her excellent history of, of the vibrator, boy, there's words you don't really say many, much in that order. No. Boy, that is an excellent history of the vibrator. Yeah, no, really. Uh, Rachel Maines, she's a Cornell professor, noted that the device wasn't just invented uh, to save doctors like Granville from the hand cramps that came from manually <laughs> stimulating their patients' uh, clitorises. The original vibrators were designed used to be used only by doctors in the office. To provide not only a more rapid, but more intense paroxysm. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, paroxysm, think orgasm. Then women could achieve on their own. So, they were trying, they felt that if they could give you a stronger orgasm quicker, then they were doing their job better. I mean, they're not wrong. No, but, you know, uh, while some sex experts today uh, think that women can become addicted to their sex toys... Uh, that addiction was exactly what the inventors wanted. They wanted women to uh, desire <laughs> to come back to the doctor's office to have this done more. Well, there you go. So, that, so they're really, yeah. I mean, think about how, I'm going to talk about big pharma. Fuck. <laughs> we're, we're creating our own industry here, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that narcotics were addictive. Exactly. Uh, if you want to learn more about narcotics or opioid episode, but think about that. They invented the vibrator or the vibrator was invented to make women desire going to the doctor to get the vibrator used more. No. So not only was it sure that wealthy women kept coming back, as it were, uh, for follow-up visits, the early medical monopoly on the vibrator was designed to make a solitary masturbation with the hand seam 
unsatisfying by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, why'd you stop the podcast? Um, Chris hmm. said something. I just couldn't look him in the eye anymore. <laughs> so, uh, fortunately, the monopoly did not last long. Because by 1902, the American company Hamilton Beach, who still in business, um, making uh, kitchen appliances. <laughs> <laughs> I believe my, yeah, I think my um, my food processor is Hamilton Beach. Uh, they were marketing a mechanical vibrator for home use. Uh, what had originally been designed to supplant uh, female masturbation quickly became a device that made that private pastime easier and more fulfilling. You know what? Pour one out for Hamilton Beach. That's, uh... <laughs> Without them, <sighs> women will still be going to the doctors to uh, take care of that. It was also found that using high-pressure water jets that were originally used for douching, uh, when altered slightly, could be used to rel- relieve the hysteria. And were you and but it was a technique that was less common than the uh, vibrator or the manual stimulation. Anyone ever notice that Tom's <laughs> wife will only buy a house with a jacuzzi? <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so easy to celebrate, Doctor Granville, inventor of the vibrator, but. Um, <laughs> And hero of the Hysteria movie. I guess there was a documentary about all this. Uh, It's not a documentary per se. It is a very funny movie. Oh, have you seen it? I have seen it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's worth seeing. I don't actually remember the name of the movie itself. Hysteria. Um, Hysteria. Oh, it is. It's in italics. There it is. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it is. um, Anyway, yeah, I I think it's worth seeing. It's definitely worth seeing. So. um, There's a prostitute in it that is just fucking hilarious anyway. i'll definitely have to check that out yeah uh it's easy to celebrate dr granville and it is easy to demonize a general genital mutilating contemporary dr breaker baker brown but the two Vic, uh, victorian uh, physicians had a lot more in common not only did they believe that hysteria was a legitimate medical condition they both believed it's men's responsibility to exert complete mastery over the woman's pleasure uh one wanted to make women orgasm in his office on his terms with his invention, the other wanted to ensure that women didn't orgasm at all. Ugh. Yeah. So uh, their patients obviously experienced different results. And we were rightly to be, and you know, I mean, I think being outraged by Dr. Baker Brown is uh, perfectly normal. Um, so the differences shouldn't obscure the reality that each made his reputation by proposing new techniques to help men control women's sexuality. They both agreed on something else, the dangers of female masturbation. It was only in the mid-19th century that medical texts began to discuss the clitoris and its evident purpose. Doctors were as troubled by its location uh, as by its possibilities. Why was a clitoris located within easy reach of the average, average woman's fingers and not inside the vagina where it would be more easily stimulated during intercourse? How dare they have this kind of control over their own sexuality? Damn them. Yeah. Uh, the obvious conclusion to us that women are designed to experience sexual pleasure without relying on a man was enormously threatening to the medical establishment and just men in general. Mm. Uh, female masturbation, uh, something that something that male doctors had once considered impossible, mm-hmm. uh, represented women's independence and neither Granville nor Baker Brown could countenance that. They couldn't. They couldn't. That which, was, which blows my mind because Granville was literally doing it. Right. Because he was doing it. The fact that the women could do it for themselves was just completely unacceptable. Wow. Yeah. Trepidating. So, so rather than pouring one out for Dr. Granville, shouldn't we be rubbing one out for Dr. Granville? I think we're going to be editing some out for Dr. Granville. <laughs> is what we're going to do. Oh, come on. That was a solid one right there. Oh, yeah. No, that's going to stay in. So, so you <laughs> listeners, how about this? I jumped the gun on praising this man a little bit earlier. And uh, you don't know how I did because I cut that shit out when I learned about him. Yeah. He was a... Uh... He's an idiot. Yeah. He's he an idiot. A... He... Yikes. So... 
Uh, trepanning or trepanning. Not exactly sure which one it is. Well, it's also known as trepanation. Right. Or trephination. Right. Or trephining. Right. Or making a burr hole. One of these things is not uh, like, like the, the other. other. <laughs> or making a burr hole is a surgical intervention in which a hole is drilled or scraped. God, scraped. It's just... <laughs> Is drilled or scraped into the human skull, exposing the dura mater. Oh. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I just imagined. So, uh, Mythbusters, everyone knows that show. Uh, they did an episode where they made a cannon out of a log, and they wanted to use an old-timey method of drilling, which is essentially a sharpened spoon that you twist into the wood. That is what I'm imagining. <laughs> Anyway, but they actually did this to treat health problems. Now, this went down to the duramater. The duramater, durama, blah, blah, blah. The duramater is a lining that goes around your brain. Mm-hmm. And you might not know this, but your brain is pretty important. And so fucking with it by drilling a hole down to it is a pretty poor choice because your body decided at one point in time, you know what? I'm going to encase this in some pretty solid calcium. Right. I like this. I'm yeah. going to make sure it's locked away safely. I like this thing. This thing here. Let's go ahead and put. Let's go now, ahead and lock it up. Some some people may say, "Well, they still do this today." Mm, no, mm. not not in the way we're talking about here. No, no, no. Yes, yeah. they they will drill holes because we've talked about that on our traumatic brain injury. Well, we're talking episode. about skull flaps there, and, and right. here's the thing I want to point out: they put it all back. Like right. that's. Oh yeah. So. Oh. Anyway, so. They expose the dura mater, the lining around the brain. Uh, it may also refer to a burr hole created through any other body services, including like nail beds, for example. Um, and there are some medical uses for that. But again, that's not what these people did. Uh, it is it. Uh, it's also often used to relieve pressure beneath any surface. Uh, so a trephine is an instrument that's used for cutting out a round piece of skull bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in ancient times, again ancient times so whenever you're like hey this uh, magical substance was used by the ancient chinese ancient mysteries Ooh, wisdom yeah these <laughs> are the same people that drilled fucking holes in the skulls um anyway in ancient trying, t- trying to get rid of evil spirits oh absolutely holes are drilled into a person who was <laughs> who was behaving in what was considered an abnormal way to let out what people believe were, were evil spirits you so and I'd be, you and i would be screwed yeah uh, yeah we're yeah yep <laughs> right there with you, man. We, you know, you and I, you and I lived in the right time for us. Oh yeah. Um, evidence of trepanation has been found in prehistoric human remains from Neolithic times onward. The bone that was trepanned was kept by the prehistoric people and may have been worn as a charm to keep evil spirits away. Oh, totally legitimate science. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, now I see why they do it. Well, the evil spirit comes by, sees that he knows you mean business. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. turning around. Fuck, that's a trepanner right there. I'm not doing this. Which, I'm going to point this out, that if you're wearing the person's skull, didn't it not work out? I mean, isn't that, you know, like, ultimately? <laughs> well, I don't think they, I don't, because they were saying that they found uh, evidence. Uh, was that people survived. It was starting to heal. Oh, wow. And so just because they did this doesn't mean the person died. Wow. That's true. Yeah. That is true, man. They, they now, the thing is, is that is it a more powerful amulet if you use somebody else's brain, uh, skull bone, or if you use your own? How? If you have a piece of your noggin taken out and you make it into an amulet, is it more powerful because you're kind of working with your own bone? I would think so. Because, yeah. again, if I was an evil spirit, I'd be like, dude, that's not like his friends or anything. That is his. Well, not only does he have a charm, but apparently he's a bad motherfucker, too. Because he survived that. Right. We've been watching these humans for decades. This shit is stupid, but he's doing it anyway. Uh, anyway. So, um, evidence does suggest that trepanation was a primitive emergency surgery after, like, head wounds to remove shattered bits of bone from a fractured skull and to clean out the blood that often pools under the skull after a blow to the head. So, these injuries were typical for primitive weaponry, such as, like, slings and war clubs. Um so, that, makes, that makes a little bit of sense. It does. So Mark Mark had alluded to earlier that there are things like skull flaps. We talked about that in our head trauma mm-hmm. episode. So one of the things that can happen when you get a good solid blow to the head is bleeding can occur inside your head. And this increases intracranial pressure. So the pressure inside your head. And what will happen is it will literally push your brain down a hole in the base of your skull called the frame and magnum. So what we'll do, at, well, not we as paramedics, but like, <laughs> yeah, this is a field intervention now. 
Mark, give me the knife, the sharp one. Uh, but anyway. 60 miles an hour down the highway. Yeah, exactly. Hold his head. Got him now. Uh, but no, it's uh, what they would do is, or what the surgeons do these days is they will actually cut a flap. And what that does is just it allows the brain to expand a little bit without shoving the brainstem down that hole. And uh, until they can find other methods to relieve the intracranial pressure or until... Uh, well, the swelling goes down. Or- yeah, until the swelling goes down. Basically, until the intracranial pressure is no longer a threat. Um, that That is a different story. And that actually does make sense in this historical con- uh, context right. that they might do that because... Based on what they're doing, there might have been, although I'm sure I'm certain a much more limited amount, there might have been some amount of success with this. If, if you have somebody with an isolated head injury and you cut this out and they survived the surgery and the subsequent probably infection, they may have lived for a long time. Right. Now, it'd be hard to tell. What would be hard to tell is would they have died anyway? Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and Yeah. I don't think. Did you ever see that commercial for? It was a travel site, and the the, sur- the brain surgeons like waggling these utensils in this guy's brain, causing him to type out yes. searches for. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> kayak dot com. <laughs> that commercial just cracked me the hell up. Yeah, it was. So. And then at the very end, he uh, hits a nerve and he high fives him. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best part. <laughs> Uh, so trepanation is perhaps one of the oldest surgical procedures for which there is archaeological evidence. Uh, some areas it was quite widespread. One of the burial sites, uh, sorry, at one bur- uh, burial site in France, dated to 6500 BCE, that's before the Common Era, 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 uh, 40 out of 120 prehistoric skulls were found to have trepanation holes. That's I a third. Stood, I thought it stood for before Christ existed. No, it's before the Common Era. Are you sure? Yeah, BC was before Christ, and then BC before Christ existed. And it was before the Common Era. That's what that stands okay. for. Yeah, we'll agree to disagree on this one. Well, let's see what Google says, bitch. <laughs> I'm just fucking with no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm in it now. If okay, it Google. Up, if, it, if it comes up with uh, before what Christ does BCE stand for? Oh man, you're never gonna hear the end of it. <laughs> before Common Era. Oh, I think you pre-recorded that and just played a snippet. The same thing previous to year one CE. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. Okay. So burial site, France, 6,500 before Christ existed. Hey, hey, I need you to wait for the audience to stop applauding and then you can move on. (laughs) Look, Christobon. Yeah. Oh, wait, this isn't recorded live. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they're clapping as they're going along anyway. Oh, yeah. This is what happens when, you know, people start trying to do standing ovations while they're driving to work. Right. You know, get that sunroof. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, burial site, dated 6500 before Christ existed. Yep. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, yeah, but uh, so before the common era, yeah, 6500 before the common era, uh, 40 out of 120 prehistoric skulls found. That's a third of prehistoric skulls found had trepanation holes. Many prehistoric and pre-modern patients had signs of their skull structure healing, suggesting that many of these subjects actually survived that procedure. It's probably because they used a dirt and urine poultice to seal the wound. Oh, Jesus. Don't start doing that, people. <laughs> another skull with a trepanation hole was found at a burial site um, at another place <laughs> dated to the 5th <laughs> millennium before the common area. You don't mean the Chalagantepi? I don't know if that's what I mean or not. (laughs) You sound like you're on it. Let's go with that. I prefer actually to call it Agdem Ryan from um, Azerbaijan. So (laughs) the prefrontal uh, leucoectomy, leucoectomy. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a precursor to the lobotomy, by the way. Was performed by cutting a treffing hole into the skull, inserting an instrument, and destroying parts of the brain. Seems like a poor choice. I would be willing to bet this happened by someone who was doing kind of an OG uh, treffing hole where mm-hmm. they weren't going to do this and they fucked up a little bit and then discovered <laughs> it's like, wow, John's a lot more mellow these days. <laughs> and then someone's like, you know what? Oh, that'd be nice. So, okay. Never <laughs> definitely cutting this now. Uh, let's see. The practice of trepanating also continues today due to a belief in pseudoscientific medical benefits. Some proponents claim that trepanating results in an increase in blood flow. It, it does, it just not does. where you want it. <laughs> because it's bleeding out of your head. Yeah. And 
individuals have practiced non-emergency uh, trepanning for psychological purposes. You can actually, uh, if you really want to increase blood, blood flow to almost any area, a uh, gunshot wound. That would work out well. Like if you want to see more blood on the outside of your leg, shoot yourself on the knee. Right. You'll, uh, you'll increase blood flow to the outside of your leg. Uh, one of the most prominent advocates of trepanning was a Dutch librarian, because that's who you want to be taking your medical advice from. Hey, you know, considering we had a barber surgeon earlier, I think this is okay. <laughs> barber surgeon? What do you think the, the, the play Barber of Seville is? He's cutting people's throats and bleeding them out. Oh, is that the same? Is that uh, Sweeney Todd? Yeah. Gotcha. Wow. Or the Bugs Bunny one. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, back to the Dutch librarian Bart Hughes. Hughes? <laughs> H-U-G-E-S, which is Dutch, not English, so I don't think it's Hughes. Anyway, in 1965, uh, he drilled a hole in his own head with a dentist drill as a publicity stunt. What? <laughs> to, to promote what? <laughs> uh, apparently, he believed that it increased brain blood volume and thereby enhanced cerebral metabolism in a manner similar to cerebral vasodilators such as ginkgo biloba. Uh <laughs> You may find this hard to believe, but these claims are unsubstantiated by research. What? Ah, I know. Uh, in the chapter of the book, Eccentric Lives and uh, Peculiar Notions. In the chapter of his book, Eccentric oh, Lives and Peculiar Notions. Oh, well, not our Hughes. This was uh, John Mitchell. Oh. oh but yeah. he cited Hughes as a pioneering the idea of trepanizing, of trepanning in, a, in his monograph, Human Sa- uh, Homo sapiens correctus. Wow. Which is often cited by advocates of self-trepanation. Among other arguments, Hughes contends that children have a higher state of consciousness. You know who also advocates this? Hmm. Uh, Will Smith's son. What's his name? Oh. Yeah. Oh, gee. You know, it's funny. I follow him on Twitter. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, Jaden? Jaden Smith, yes. Jaden Smith. Uh but they have a higher state of consciousness, and since the children's skulls are not fully closed yet, one can return to an earlier childlike state of consciousness by self-trepanation. Further, by allowing the brain to freely pulsate, Hughes argues that a number of benefits will accrue. You know, I'm not going to go ahead and throw Will Smith's kid under the bus too much here, because I had a lot of dumb thoughts when I was a kid. <laughs> I just wasn't rich enough uh, to be that loud about them. Right. So. Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, he believes that babies have a higher state of consciousness than than adults do. According to some of his tweets. No. Yeah. You know what? At 2 a.m., they certainly fucking do. He's not wrong. (laughs) So uh, Mitchell quotes uh, a book called Borehole. Written by a guy named Joey Mellon, which we even know what Joey's... Uh, there's no doctor in front of his name, so I'm going to say he's not an expert in medical procedures. Uh, at the time the passage below was written, Joey and his partner, Amanda Fielding, had made two previous attempts at trepanning Mellon, the guy who wrote the book. The second attempt ended up placing Mellon in the hospital where he was reprimanded severely and sent for psychiatric evaluation. After he returned home... Mellon decided to try again. Uh, He describes his third attempt at self-trepanation. If you don't really like graphic uh, comments, just fast forward over this part. (laughs) (laughs) After some time, there was an ominous sounding slurp and the sound of bubbling. I drew the trepan out of the gurgling. So he's doing this to himself. I drew the trepan out of the, and the gurgling continued. It sounded like bubbles running under the skull as they were pressed out. I looked at the trepon, and there was a bore, a bit of bone in it. At last. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> He's, like, thrilled about this. Oh, yeah. Finally did it. Third attempt. One put me in the hospital. And I went for psychiatric evaluation. So let's just give you a third time's a charm. Yeah. Mitchell also describes a British group that advocates self-trepanation to allow brain access uh, to more space and oxygen. So... Oxygen in your bloodstream is bad <laughs> in large quantities. As long as it's not, okay, oxygen in your bloodstream is fine as long as it's bound to hemoglobin, right. which is bound to your red blood cells. Free roaming oxygen <laughs> in your bloodstream in large quantities is bad. It's called an air bolus. Air embolus. No, okay, yes, you're right, air embolus. Um, 
giving your brain more space. Under normal circumstances, your brain doesn't has all the space it needs. Right. It doesn't have a whole lot of extra space. It doesn't have an attic with which, which to store stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, it might take out a storage unit. Like, a lot of us have to do that. But right. Aside, you know. If you haven't used that part of your brain in, like, six months, you just don't need it. Yeah. Uh, other modern practitioners of trepanation claim that it holds other medical benefits, such as a treatment for depression, <laughs> mainly because I guess the pain's so bad you can't don't have time to be depressed, right? Uh, and other psychological ailments. In two thousand, in two thousand, two men from Cedar City, Utah, were prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license after they performed a trepanation on an English woman to treat her to treat her chronic fatigue syndrome and depression. Now. I would say it probably treated the chronic fatigue syndrome, but the <laughs> amount of sleep she got while she was in the hospital recovering probably helped clear that up. <laughs> oh, Lord. So, last one. Lobotomy. Which is kind of a subsect of trepanation, I believe, or a follow-up of trepanation. Yeah, so lobotomy, it's a form of uh, psychosurgery. So it's a neurosurgical treatment of a mental disorder that involves severing connections uh, in the brain's prefrontal cortex. So most of the connections uh, to and from the prefrontal cortex, the anterior part of the frontal lobes of the brain, are severed. It was used for psychiatric and then occasionally for other conditions as a mainstream procedure in Western countries uh, for more than two decades. Uh, this was despite general recognition of frequent and serious side effects. Uh, evidence that surgical manipulation of the brain could calm patients first emerged in the late 1880s, when Swiss physician Gottlieb Burkhardt, who supervised an insane asylum, BT dubs, removed parts of the brain cortex in patients suffering from auditory hallucinations and other symptoms of mental illness, uh, symptoms that today we would identify as schizophrenia. So Burkhardt performed his operation on six patients with the specific purpose of not returning the patients to a state of sanity, but putting them into a state of calm. Oh, that was weird. Anyway, in 1935, however, American neuroscientist Carlisle F. Jacobson and John Fulton presented the results of an experiment involving frontal lobe ablation, which is more of like a like a cauterization, if you will. It's a heating up uh, in chimpanzees. Prior to ablation, one of the animals would become agitated when it made the incorrect choice during a memory task. This response was eliminated by the operation. The originator of that procedure, though, Portuguese neurologist Antonio Igues Moniz, uh, shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology of Medicine in 1949. Yeah, got a Nobel Prize for coming up with lobotomies. Right. That doesn't seem like a... Because, I mean, the Nobel Prize, from what I understand, is... Well, it's a peace prize. It's working towards peaceful effects of your science. How does this fall into that? Well, at the time, they probably thought <clears throat> a little more highly of it. I'm going to guess. So, one of the things to point out, though, is um, I don't know if this talks about it later, but this actually does return people to a state of calm. Uh, in Although it's difficult to tell if they're actually calm or just cannot express what they're feeling anymore. Uh, they they do talk we do they do talk about this a little bit in the fact that uh, it actually has very it can cause somebody who was calm but was having problems mm -hmm. it can actually have a, a reciprocal change in them and they become more outgoing or they lose their sense of, uh, of inhibitions. Wow. Although as you anyway. So yeah, the wording of that was subject to quite a bit of controversy. So the surgery consisted of drilling two holes in a patient's head and then injecting uh, pure ethyl alcohol into the prefrontal cortex. Alcohol was used to disrupt the neuronal tracts that were believed to give rise and to reinforce recurrent patterns of thought observed in the mentally ill patients. At the time, the first operation was considered a success since there appeared to be a reduction in symptoms of severe patients and anxiety. I'm sorry. A reduction of symptoms of severe paranoia and anxiety, and the patient suffered prior to the surgery. So he created an instrument called the uh, leukotome, designed specifically to disrupt the tracts of neural fibers connecting the prefrontal cortex and the thalamus of the brain. Uh, Moniz and Lima operated on nearly 40 patients by 1937. However, the results were mixed and some patients improving while with, with some patients improving and others showing absolutely no symptoms or no change in symptoms uh, with others relapsing. Despite this, the practice was soon widely adopted, largely because there were few other therapeutic measures available at the time. 
So it kind of right. goes back to the, it's not great, but it's what we, <laughs> we got. We got to do something. Yeah, got to do something. Let's scramble some brains. Yeah, why not? Eggs, brains, who cares? Uh, so the use of the procedure increased <laughs> dramatically from the early 1940s and then into the 1950s. By 1951... Wow. <laughs> Go ahead, 1951. Uh, yeah, by 1951, oops. By 1951, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States alone. And in 1951, a study of American hospitals found that nearly 60% of lobotomy patients were women. Limited data shows 74% of, lobo- of lobotomies in Ontario from 1948 to 1952 were performed on women. It just seems weird that someone would have a statistic specifically on Ontario. Well, I think that there was a, a college in Ontario, Canada, that did the study, and so they kept sense. it local. There you go. But think about that. 20,000 people in the United States. Yeah. In 10 years. That's a lot. That's 2,000 people a year. Yeah. The purpose of the operation was to reduce the symptoms of a mental disorder, as we've talked about, and it was recognized that this was accomplished at the expense of the person's personality and intellect. So they knew it. Like, like no one was like, well, they'll probably be fine. It was basically like... Which, quite frankly, that that's more of a treatment to the people around these people, not the person themselves. Absolutely. Uh, British psychiatrist Maurice Patridge... Uh, or Partridge, rather, who conducted a follow-up study of 300 patients, said that the treatment achieved its effects by reducing the complexity of psychic life. Uh, following the operation, spontaneity, responsiveness, self-awareness, and self-control were reduced. Um, activity was replaced by inertia, and people were just left emotionally blunted and restricted in their intellectual range. Of course they would be. Right. Uh, you're missing a part of your brain. The practice gradually... <laughs> well, if you know where it is, it's just not hooked up to anything. Right, Exactly. It's kind of like, we knew where we were. We, we were stuck. Anyway, uh, so the practice gradually fell out of favor beginning in the mid-1950s, thank God, when antipsychotics, antidepressants, and other medications that were much more effective in treating and alleviating the distress of the mentally disturbed patients came into use. So, I don't think you went over this one. Uh, use of, lobo- of the uh, lobotomy in the United States was uh, resisted and criticized. Uh, you said the... So... Initially, they did trepanning, right? Yeah. To uh, do this. Did you go over the pick-like instruments? I did not. So, in 1945, Dr. Freeman streamlined the procedure. Well, thank God. That's how we got 20,000 people done in 10 years. I'm telling you. Is we <laughs> got to really get it done, got, guys. Yeah, man. We really got to make a, like a, uh, you know, a, a I actually, bell system in this. I should look at him as the Henry Ford of lobotomies. <laughs> right. So, in 1945, Dr. Freeman streamlined the procedure replacing with a transordable lobotomy in which a pick-like instrument was forced through the back of the eye socket to pierce the thin bone that separates the eye socket from the frontal lobes. The pick points were then inserted, uh, was then inserted and the front lobe, oh, shit. The pick, the pick point was then inserted into the frontal lobe and used to sever the connections in the brain uh, between the prefrontal cortex and the thalamus. Now, if you've just got a piece of metal sticking through that bone, I, I'm finding it hard to believe this was a real subtle thing they did. And I, I just, I, the only way I can see that working is basically just spinning it around in circles. Ah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was no subtlety to this. There was no precision. There was just, I mean, they're forcing it through the bone in your eye, behind your eye. Duh. And just winding it around inside your skull. But hey, you know, it's not like we had medications to take care of this at the time, so we got to do something, right? So next up on medical stuff, how to whip eggs. Exactly. <laughs> this is what we call so, stiff peaks. Exactly. <laughs> so that's all I have on lobotomy. How about you, man? That's a cooking joke, by the way. It, if was, anyone... <laughs> it was a very, very strange cooking joke. It was funny as a cooking joke, but just maybe the forum wasn't that great. But, you know, I'm okay with it because I think there's, there's going to be maybe five listeners that are going to get that and love it. <laughs> no, uh, I am set, man. I've got nothing else on this. You got nothing else? Yeah, I'm done. Anything else on any of the other subjects you want to I mean, out? I mean, not not like appropriate for the podcast. But. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is medical stuff. This is outdated medical uh therapies and concepts 
Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, we're on all of the social media. We're on Facebook at Medical Stuff. We're on Instagram at Medical Stuff 52. We are on Twitter at MedSide Stuff, M-E-D-S-I-D-E-S-T-U-F-F. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at MedSideStuff at Yahoo.com. We've gotten a lot of really good messages lately. We've got some really good ideas for uh, future episodes. And so we're always very excited to hear from everybody. We're on uh, iTunes, we're on Google Play, we're on Stitcher, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Hopefully Spotify. Pandora by now. Hopefully Pandora. I can't find us on there, and I've resubmitted. And so I'm going to send them an email and just ask them what's going on. So. Right. But yeah, we, you can definitely find us out there. Uh, that's well, you all obviously did, actually. <laughs> you, you obviously did find <laughs> right, us out there. exactly. But if so. you have another platform you like. Hmm. I think I want to try it over there. Well, yeah, because some people, you know, they like Spotify over iTunes or iTunes over Spotify, you know. Right. We're on both. Right. Just don't know about Pandora yet. No. So I'm going to get out of here. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you again next Monday morning at 7 o'clock. We release an episode every morning, every Monday at 7 a.m. All right. Have a good evening, and Chris, toast. toast.